Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain. And an athlete. And a basket case. A princess. And a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Don't, 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 don't you forget about me. Welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that does what it says in the tin. I think it's best film ever. My name is Ian. And I'm Liam. And Liam, let's just break it down for any newcomers um, who may be listening. Uh, we go see a lot of movies together, don't we, buddy? We do indeed. Well, at least well, we, not so much recently. Not so much recently. <laughs> we used to, and uh, I'm looking forward we to hopefully, do. hopefully we can do it soon. We can all have like a little plexiglass like bubble around us. Like plexiglass yeah. everywhere, because I hear movies are great when you see them through like giant plexiglass. <laughs> because we're... the sound quality is going to be amazing. <laughs> Maybe we get like little like headphone ports we could use or something like that. Yeah. But where I come from is how you watch ice hockey. There's a big piece of plexiglass in front of you, and if we can get used to that, then surely we can get used to to that. Oh, I really couldn't be bothered, but I do want to go back and see some films at the Majestic in Kings Lynn. Absolutely. Definitely miss that. Hurry back soon, guys. Uh, I don't know. There's some big movies, I guess, coming up later in the year. I mean, Ghostbusters and Wonder oh, Woman. Looking forward to that. Oh, yes, definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here, though. As the months move on, I'm going, are you sure we're going to be back in, in August to the theaters? Are you sure? Because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. So usually we'd be here recording at the Studio of Awesomeness, but thanks to COVID and all of its wonderful delights that it's given us, we're having to do this on a virtual roundtable, and we've been joined by a couple of perma guests. Let's let them introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Ellie. And I'm Georgia. And we're gathered here today, sort of, to talk, well, not sort of, we are gathered here today, to talk about The Breakfast Club. But before we do, um, I forwarded around an image to the group about sequels coming out in 2021. Was there anything there that grabbed anybody's fancy? Just because this summer's been kind of lost, as we were just talking about, to sequels and to big films. Is there anything on next year's docket that jumps out at you? For me, Sherlock Holmes 3, because that's a bit of a surprise for me. (sighs) I mean... I guess we've got, you know, Robert Downey Jr. back in the saddle and all that stuff, because I didn't like number two. I thought number two was so similar to number one. I don't even remember it. Yeah. I do. Yeah, but I, I just like the stories of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I was going to say a similar thing. I do really like Sherlock Holmes as a character and everything, but the, the two films that we've already had didn't particularly jump out at me as being especially good. I think the TV series is much better with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, but... The other one on the list that I think should be interesting is Avatar 2. I never saw Avatar um, 1. Well, I have seen it once, and I do definitely need to go back and revisit it. But obviously the kind of the coverage of Avatar and the reception of it was was quite big, wasn't it? And it was sort of... Was it like because it used groundbreaking new... Yep. Um, yeah, new I didn't like it. Stuff. Well, it brought 3D back so, in vogue for years, and I don't think I've forgot, forgiven it for that because I hate 3D films. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Same. Um, yeah, uh, I just think it'd be interesting to see what they do with the second one because they had that gimmick with the first one, 
but if that's now been repeated by lots of other films well to be fair it was more than 3d i mean there are some some fantastic special effects that went on in that like they designed new like they were like basically james cameron waited for cameras to be invented so he could shoot this vision he had in his head so like he created the technology he needed to make this story but i mean it's been 11 years since it's been the, a while. i mean like have we moved on is it too long it's a very long time between a sequel to one film isn't it yeah uh back to sherlock holmes i mean i it's really weird i liked the dynamic between jude law and robert downey jr i always thought that was good i just found yeah, the stories same. kind of the first one there was the, there's the cool bit where he does like the fight scene and breaks down how to beat up that big guy i was like oh i like that <laughs> yeah. but the, that's the only thing i remember out of the two films i don't know georgia was there one yeah. on that list that jumped out at you I was looking forward to seeing Spider-Man 3 because I really like the first two. I know a lot of people didn't rate the second one as highly as the first one. And I don't. I don't think it's as yeah. good as the first one. But I enjoyed it anyway. I really, really, really liked number one. Like, I so yeah. liked number one. It's my favorite Spider-Man Same. movie. Like, that and Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire are my top two. But I think I, I prefer Homecoming so much more. And then it's, there was like an old gimmick in the 80s and 90s where what did you do if you had to do a sequel? You put it in Europe. And it just felt so lazy. It's what they did. Let's have them go to Europe. Why? Because we want to have a global – obviously, the first one probably didn't do well enough in Europe. So what do you do? You set the next one in Europe. And that's, yeah. the, that's the problem with that. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just hoping for more, I guess. Maybe it just really hurt from the last... It's funny how we're talking about Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. And my biggest problem with Spider-Man 2 was the lack of Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and how important he is to that Spider-Man they've created, that dynamic. Yeah. So... Yeah. yeah. And then the last impression he's left with Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of trying to make John Favreau that father figure happy and make happy be kind of that... I don't know it's working. But, you know, no. I'll just be glad if we have a full slate of movies next summer at the cinemas. That will be... Something there. So, um, speaking of which, let's, uh, what we're thankful for, let's give thanks to anybody who's downloaded the podcast. We had another great week again this week, which is fantastic. And we found, really appreciate And we found out that we charted in some strange places this week. <laughs> we somehow hit the charts in Great Britain, which I would expect. I would expect that. Yeah. Canada, which I would, I guess, sort of expect. Anybody who knows me back home, thank you so much. It was kind of cool to see that we charted in Canada. And then we also charted in Australia and apparently in Kuwait. So, like, you know, like, like th- things you wouldn't expect. So if you're out there and you're going, yeah, I listen to you guys. I guess I'm expecting the normal distribution of the podcast to be Great Britain and maybe Canada. But if you're from somewhere outside of that expectation, why not give us a shout on one of our socials? Let us know where you're listening from because it's just cool to find out where people are checking us out from. So you can get us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Best Film Ever Pod. So it's the same for all three. Hit us up. Let us know where you're listening to us from because uh, that's just quite fun when I go check out the stats for things like that. That is. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And just to close up from last week where we did Die Hard. And we had a couple of audio gremlins last week. But we did Die Hard. A good fun time, time to be had. And I asked, what is the best Die Hard movie, Liam? And I put it up on the Twitter. And uh, universally... Every person said it was Die Hard 1. <laughs> but then on my personal Facebook, I asked, and everybody said Die Hard 3. But I think that maybe because I asked a bit of a leading question on my personal <laughs> Facebook. So I don't know. So I think we have to treat the great openness of Twitter and go, you got us on that. Die Hard number one is apparently the best Die Hard movie. But to be fair, no one did vote for number two. So I think number two is the forgotten child because it's just, you know, 
it's it's a little bit similar to number one. It's good. It's good. It holds. It's, it's, it's a very good film. Maybe we'll have to review yeah. number one someday as well. Number one sometime, maybe. Yeah. People think it's better than number three. It might be the best film ever. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But let's talk about what we have today on the docket for best film ever. And we are looking at The Breakfast Club, a true 1980s classic, if you will. And it was written and directed by John Hughes. John Hughes, king of the 80s teen film. John Hughes. So, um, I mean, uh, and it's kind of funny that we're doing this today because uh, The Breakfast Club debuted in the States on February 7th, 1985. But it debuted in the UK on June 7th, 1985. It is exactly 35 years to the day that Breakfast wow. Club debuted in the UK. So I guess That's... on that note, I mean, do people have a lot of experience with, with teen films? Not really, no. Not really, no? I suppose I've seen well... a fair few, but I've never seen Breakfast Club. So, Liam, I mean, if that? I should like Clueless, Mean oh, Girls... Yeah. Um, yeah. Arguably, Back to the Future. Uh, John Tucker must die. Ten things I hate about you. Ten things <laughs> I hate about you. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I was going to say Heather's. Is Heather's a teen movie? I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's set in high school. Yeah, yeah. Is it set in high school? Okay, great. Yeah, I like Heather's. Uh, oh, oh, she's all that. Oh, you know what I mean? I like, that. but you yeah. don't get really any of these really without. I don't think without Breakfast Club. I think it is the. It is the archetypal teen movie, anyway. It was the one that sort of broke the mold because when John Hughes went to get this uh, greenlit, which is when a studio says, yes, put the rubber stamp on it, we are making this film, he said he had a really hard time getting people at, uh, I want to say Universal, yes, Universal, to, 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 to greenlight it because they were expecting, and this is a quote, bare breasts, a party scene, or lots of beer. Because that's <laughs> what a teen movie was, Liam. You think about things like... Um, Porky's Animal House. Animal House. Like these are the expectations of what a teen movie is. And it's like just a bunch of kids sitting around talking. I mean, it, it almost reads like a play. It's just some it's, yeah. it's it's like some bad art house play where you just wander to different parts of his library and talk. Yeah. But it works. It be written though. Yeah, it does. It is it work. is beautifully written. It is. Yeah. It is. And the way they did this was they rehearsed it for three weeks and then they shot it, but they shot it in sequence. Yeah, I did hear that. So meaning that, you know, the first scene was the first one they shot. Then they moved on to the yeah. second scene. And films very rarely do this. They usually, but yeah. I guess when you're doing, it's one location. There's nothing that stops you from doing it in sequence. There's no scheduling no. you have to worry about. So um, the poster, if you know the poster, the five or six of them, five of them, sitting there sort of staring at the camera with that sort of look on their face. That was shot by the uh, renowned photographer Annie Leibowitz. You heard of Andy Leibowitz? That rings a bell. She, rings a bell she's an award-winning photographer. Very important kind of in, in her field. But it kind of gave the idea of that whole idea of just looking blankly at the camera. That's kind of a, a trope that's picked up since. It's been called the quintessential 80s film. Um, the famous American film critics Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. And Gene Siskel gave it three and a half out of four stars. And said that it kind of... Like other films have done this confessional style where it's just characters talking to each other, perhaps most famously Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or uh, My Dinner with, with Andre. Um, but they said that maybe nothing's done it really at the teenage level like Breakfast Club. And he said he kept expecting it to like jump into teenage hijinks with like the big fight scene or the big sex scene. And he was very glad it never happened. And it just sort of stayed true to what it was. 
And uh, the only little interesting fact I've got about kind of where the script originally started was in an early shooting script, there was a scene where uh, Paul Gleason's character, Richard, what was his last name? The, the, the teacher, Richard. I've got it somewhere once. Anyway, um, he apparently would go Vernon. and sp- Richard Vernon, that's it. He would Vernon. go and spy on a female gym teacher who for some reason was swimming naked in the pool. <laughs> like like okay. like you would on the weekend and apparently um uh, Molly Ringwald, Ali Sheedy and one of the uh, female members of the production team went up to him and basically said you got to cut that. And so he did. And so this woman who probably thought she was getting her big break because she had some sp- spoken lines as well got cut from from the film. And years later they asked her about it and she went I never knew there was supposed to be some naked scene with me. I just was told I had to do a scene where I was like talking to the kids about life decisions. So how much that's true versus legend, God knows. But it was made for a million-dollar budget. That was it. And it made $52 million. So that's not a bad return on your investment. And that is the John Hughes effect. So Breakfast Club. Um, So let's go ahead and start up. So we start up with – the iconic strains of Simple Minds and Don't You Forget About Me, the song that's been stuck in my head ever since. And mine. Um, Originally, the song was given to Billy Idol. It was given to Billy Idol. I was going to ask if you knew that. Yeah. yeah. And so someone else was offered it as well. It's just interesting because there's a, there's a Billy Idol reference in this film. At one yeah. point, Bender asks if it's going to be a white wedding. <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder if that's a dig. I wonder if that's something more than it is. And us Simple Minds weren't really enamored with the song. They but they went, we'll yeah. do it. And they referred to yeah, it as a throwaway song for a forgettable movie. And it wasn't until <laughs> after the film released that they woke up one day and basically their agent phoned them and said, you have a number one song in America. And <laughs> name me another Simple Minds song because I can't do it. No, I can't no, this is This is it. This is their legacy. And if Liam can't do it, then it's really Absolutely. <laughs> And so it reminds me a lot how important this song is for The Breakfast Club, even more so probably, than the only thing I could think that was comparable was how important Power of Love was to uh, Back to the Future, back, back in episode future. one. Because they both open with these sort of iconic songs that sort of carry you through. It cements you to start with the film, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, and it's become, an, it's become synonymous with the film. I put on my own personal socials that we were doing Breakfast Club today, and I even put little brackets underneath. I said, and I bet just hearing the words Breakfast Club, you've got simple minds in your head right now because they are so closely linked, I think, especially that final image that we'll come to. And it opens with a David Bowie quote on the screen. We just get what we, we, we call it a Chiron. And the Chiron on the screen, Ellie, do you have that? I do, yeah. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Do you know what song that's from? I'm not asking like I know the answer. I think I read it at some point and I've forgotten it. But anyway, I want to think maybe it's Heroes, but I could be wrong on that. Um, Okay. And that quote was actually not originally planned for it. Ali Sheedy, who played Allison, came up to John Hughes and said, I've got a quote for the start of the movie. Wow. Yeah. How do we feel about I, the about the broken glass changes. that gives us the shot of the uh, gives us the shot of the school? Because the quote happens, and then it goes like, and like the glass breaks yeah. away, and it's the shot of the school. I'm like, yeah. I didn't really need that. 
No. Very, very 80s, wasn't it? It felt like, oh, look, look at this fun effect that we've got. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was Changes by David Bowie. I knew it was like a single word. Changes. Turn face. I'll tell you what, though. Changes. If you wanted to See, have... See, the thing is, I know that song from Shrek 2. How bad is that? That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to have authentic edge to it and credibility, how good a quote is David Bowie? A timeless yes, quote for arguably a timeless movie. If they'd gone with some Duran Duran quote, <laughs> or yeah. some, as much as Duran Duran, hey, I like a good Duran Duran song from you know every now and then. Or who was that band who did the you know, girl, you know it's true. Ooh, ooh, mm-hmm. Millie Vanilli, Millie Vanilli, <laughs> like, <Millie> Vanilli. <laughs> like that ages the movie instantly. But I don't Bowie, even know who that is. but Bowie <laughs> is timeless. Very. So, uh, and then we have the first lines of the script that's read to us and it's by brian brian who's played by anthony michael hall who had done a few things with um john hughes over the years um and we have a montage as he's talking all about the the letter that will find out why he wrote that we have all these shots of the school and we kind of see hints of what was going to happen we see a burnt out locker we see uh, the locker room with all sorts of gym equipment on the floor we see, like, homecoming queen signs and just establish us in the universe of this abandoned school. And all of the different characters' places in it. And Yes, all the characters' places in it. And we've also got some... There's going to be some homophobic slurs in this. Uh, Especially in the first few minutes. The first few minutes. It's but intense. I'll, I'll tell you what, as someone who went to uh, high school, not in the 80s, but not too far into the 90s, I mean, this was... Especially suburb, small town kind of thing. Uh, man, I mean, it was definitely an accurate part of, of the vernacular, I think, growing up. Especially by the athletes, and we hear a lot of it from the athletes, don't we? Yeah. Uh, oh, I think those particular words weren't used when I was at, at high Oh, really? School, but, um, like, different homophobic slurs were definitely still Oh, no, we, we, we definitely had that. Liam, how about you? Did you have that? Well, yeah, it was just a time and a place, wasn't it? It was... It's not something you'd use today, but back then it was. Yeah, it's like with anything; it trends. Yeah, and and and, words. and and no uncertain terms. We're absolutely not uh, saying it's okay that it was used then. No, but but it was the word that was used then. Yeah, it, it, it's the experience. Yeah. You know, you know, I I heard people shout that around and directed yeah. at people and da 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 da, and you kind of hoped it wasn't at you, not because it was any sort of authentic demonstration. You just knew it was an insult that it was coming. You knew what the implication was and the insinuation was. But, uh, yeah, so I think it's authentic to the time, just the time sucked in some ways. And we just have to remember that we're like 35 years on now. 35 years on. <laughs> yeah. um, so then we enter our list of characters as they're coming for detention. And the first to show up is Claire, played by the incomparable Molly Ringwald, who kind of was synonymous with a five-year window, a three-year window maybe even, I mean. If you wanted yeah. a teen movie made in the 80s, in the mid-80s, Molly Ringwald was your person. And she's there, and she's in her BMW, and we find out that she was caught, she was shopping. And she got caught <laughs> skipping school for shopping, and Dad's a pushover. And I was like, can't you get me out of it? I'm like, how entitled are you? You know, well, they don't even always got to go in. Oh, this is so, I can't believe it. I'm like, okay, I already don't like you. Yeah, <laughs> and she had worked with um, John Hughes on several things, but most recently, Sixteen Candles. 
Yeah. And then our next character in is Brian. And Brian played by Anthony Michael Hall, who read the opening monologue. And he was also in 16 Candles. And he was the first one to sign on. Uh, And the woman beside him and the kid in the back seat are his real mom and sister. Aww. Yeah, I knew that. They got I a nice that. little moment there. <clears throat> yeah, and mom's yeah. like, make sure. Mom's not a good actress, but she's like, make sure you study. He's like, don't let us study. She's like, well, you find a way to study. <laughs> and and then, also, the guy that plays his dad is John Hughes, isn't it? At the end, yeah, you stole, you the, stole the wind out of my sails. <laughs> oh, sorry, dude. It's sorry. okay. We'll come back to it. Um, <laughs> and then we've got uh, Andrew shows up, and Andrew's played by Emilio Estevez. And I'll tell you what, Liam, halfway through, I was like, man. I'm going to come up with a top five list of things that because Emilio Estevez at one point was so big. Huge. And then he was nothing. He's a director now, though. Is he? Yeah, okay. he directs a lot. Um, and there's a line. And I feel it's important to bring it up. And he's, his dad's telling him off and saying, what, you know, you need to get your head on straight. You need to sort of figure it out. And he goes, what school is going to give a scholarship to a discipline case? And it stops there. And uh, the full line before it was cut was, what line, What school was going to give a scholarship to a discipline case? At least what white school? Or something like that. Oh. And I was like, oh, jeez. Wow. Oh so God. racist line is racist, and I'm glad they cut it, because that would have been an ugly, ugly, ugly stain on this film. Yeah. yeah so we could only treat it as, and if you're playing small town American, you and all that stuff, that was something this film did not need. Yeah. And I'm glad like, they cut that. It's not like the issue of race is addressed in the rest of the film. Like, no. they have any other characters for him to have any kind of character growth with it. It would just be completely It would just be a throwaway. And the best you could hope for is people might go, dad's a racist, but hopefully the young people aren't. But it's just not necessary. Then enter Allison, played by Ali Sheedy. A couple of interesting factors. Number one, the original actress who was supposed to play Allison was Molly Ringwald. Oh, Oh, really? They wanted her to play that, and apparently she petitioned super hard for the right to play Claire because she felt Allison was too close to a character she played before. And I'm like, I'm not really seeing that, but she really wanted to play the the sort of princess role instead. And so they went, all right, fine. And they cast Allison. I'm glad you're fair. I think it works. I, I think she's right, but it's really, really interesting. And then a yeah. fun story is John Hughes, before the first day of filming, went to Ali Sheedy and said, tomorrow, I want you to have your clothes, take a costume home. I want you to wake up and I want you to be uh, Allison. That's who I want you to be. And she says, she was thinking to herself, I am Allison. Like, <laughs> I don't have to pretend this character. I know this person because this is, this is me. This is a pretty good sort of idea of who I am. And then you know who Ali Sheedy reminds me of no. in that film? She reminds me of um, Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. Oh, does she really? Yeah. Okay. I think she looks really similar to Emma Watson. Oh, come on. No. In no. several scenes in this film, I saw uh, Emma Watson. Maybe, at, maybe after the makeover. No, maybe yeah, just beforehand when I noticed it. No, no, no. No. I didn't see that. Maybe because I saw this first. I think it's yeah, like with the, sh- with the short hair as well. And then, yeah. really quickly, we get Bender. And Bender's the only one who's not getting dropped off. He's walking up by himself. And uh, do you know who was originally supposed to play Bender? There's two, there's two answers to this one. Really? Um, who can I think of back then? <sighs> Rob Lowe, Charlie Sheen. Not, ba- uh, not bad guesses. But actually, very close to Charlie Sheen, it was his brother. 
Oh, really? Apparently, Emilio Estevez was the first one who was supposed to play John Bender. And they couldn't find anybody to play Andrew. And he went, I can put Estevez as Andrew and get someone else to play Bender. Bender wasn't hard for him to fill. But he went, no one else can play Andrew, I think, besides Estevez. So they asked him if he'd basically pivot to this role. Because Estevez was playing a lot of edgy characters around that time and more of a John yeah, Bender type. But if you think about it, John Bender's not the hard character to play as much. I think there's a lot more conflict in Andrew than there is yeah. in Bender. And then there was someone else who was cast before Judd Nelson. And that was John Cusack. Really? Was cast. And then they changed their mind because he didn't come across as aggressive. Now, I, no, I Ellie, I'm assuming say. you haven't. George, I'm going to assume you haven't. Liam, I'm assuming you have seen Say Anything. Yeah, many years ago. The famous the one where, the, he, where he holds the boombox boom above his head. Yeah, yeah, A scene yeah. that you think is going to be way more important because of how often it's referenced, but actually in the story it means nothing. I was going to say, I even know that reference and I've not seen the film. It's yeah. like, it's like Modern Family does it, where like, uh, yeah, yeah. what's the boyfriend's name again? Andy? No, Haley's boyfriend, the 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 one Andy. the one who always comes back Dylan. every Dylan does it with like, and at one point uh, Phil Sorry comes up to him say 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 anything and he's like I am I'm telling Haley I love her he goes no say anything he's like anything and he doesn't get it but it's a famous bit anyway long story short if you remember John Cusack in that role he kind of looks like John Bender with the big trench coat and the he long does hair faces and. Well, he's, he's, not, got the he's not angry. Look there, needs, about him. there needs to be anger and pain. And that's what they went yeah. with. They went, no one's doing anger and pain. So they cast Judd Nelson, yeah. which is kind of good. The problem is um, he kind of got a little bit method. And he was constantly like bullying Molly Ringwald behind the scenes. <laughs> so much so that John really? Hughes was going to fire him and the rest of the actors had to like talk him out of it. Yeah. <laughs> A couple of other interesting facts. Those clothes he wears are Judd Nelson's actual clothes that he wore himself when he came to audition. And they went, run with it. That's the costume. The boots (laughs) got the look they did because he poured a quart of motor oil over them and left them overnight. (laughs) And he, to get ready for the role, uh, went undercover at a school and, like, got enrolled. And, like, he would, like, you know... Oh, I got my brother to buy us beer and stuff like that. Well, it wasn't a brother, you know, because he was like well past high school age. And so um, that worked out. Emilio Estevez tried to do the same thing, but he was way too famous and he got outed every time he got undercover. (laughs) 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 And so we go in and we go into the library. And if you're thinking this is the biggest, fanciest, I used to think, man, American high schools are nice. This library is huge. It's actually the gym. Of the school they, yeah. they rented, and they sort of modified it to look like a library because that thing's a palace. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same school that's used for the interior shots of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes, I knew that. Which was also a John Hughes thing. Know. And they're all shot in like the Chicago area. If you know anything about John Hughes, they're all kind of Chicago suburbs. Because that's an abandoned school, isn't it? It was closed at the time. It does reopen later. And in a really really cool story, years later, they would move the whole school to a different building. And they found, like, a first draft of the script in, like, one of the cupboards. Like, this is, like, like 2011, they find the script. That's great. (laughs) Which I think is just really cool. Yeah, I do. wonder how much that was worth. Yeah, it's a good shout. It's a good shout. It's pretty cool. And then... uh, Enter the principal, Mr. Vernon. Not principal, the teacher, Mr. Vernon. And apparently it's 7.06 in the morning. Like, I'm sorry. As someone who, as someone who teaches, like, I am... 
Uh, unless this guy's the prince, or he's not the vice prince. He's just a teacher. I don't know what his role is, but his job's there at seven oh six on a Saturday. Like I would hate my yeah. job. I yeah, yeah I... first that he was the principal, but then it became no. He's not the principal. Yeah, he's really not. <laughs> he's really not. He's just some guy. But it seems yeah, like I he's think, there I every even Saturday. Took a note of the time. Yeah, I even took a note of the time. Going, uh, yeah, nah, not happening. <laughs> like seven in the morning. That teacher's not gonna want to be there. Like no one wants to be there. No. And he tells them, it's 7.06, they've got 8 hours and 54 minutes, which means it goes till 4. And they have to write a thousand word essay on who do you think you are. And it's got to be a proper essay question. Yeah. And she says, any questions? And that's when we get our first comeback from Mr. Bender. Yeah, does Barry Manilow know that you raided his wardrobe? (laughs) Which, to be fair, that joke's a bit dated now, because I don't think people know who Barry Manilow is as much. Um, and then it's kind of the best way I think to go through this is to treat each thing almost like they're scenes or little skits. So we have everybody's quiet and they start to sort of and to break the tension. Bender says he's going to take a piss. <laughs> and this is where we see Andrew's homophobia hit in about 0.8 seconds. Because like, I swear, if you whip that out, I'm going to kick your ass. Because it's all we get this clear. He's homophobic and he's violent. That's Andrew's character really, really quickly. Um, and then it turns, uh, then the, okay, we're going to talk about this throughout. This film is very problematic in some ways. And I think we're about 15 Mm -hmm. minutes in and John Bender says, quick, lock the door. We'll impregnate the prom queen. Yeah. And I'm just going. (laughs) I know, right? Um, but we are looking at the eyes of today, not eyes of back then. Yeah. You know? In the way of saying things, I mean, that was just throwaway back then, where now we think a lot more into it. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you believe in dominant, dominant ideas are sort of fed to you as you grow up, um, this is a product of its time. Absolutely, we should say it, it's not right. No. But it's a product of its time. And what we're establishing here is conflict. From, just from a storytelling yeah. perspective, we're taking our two most different characters, the princess and the criminal, and we're having them interact. Yeah. And very quickly, um, we see that Andrew's getting riled up, but Claire's kind of wising up and saying, don't react, it's what he wants. Ignore him. And it's when we get one of those great lines, honey, you couldn't ignore me if you tried. And I'm going, nice. Um, And then, what do I have written here? Cluds. I have no idea what I've written here. My writing's atrocious. You really should type your notes. Oh, and then we start having a conversation about clubs. Clubs. And Bender's like, why would you want to go for clubs? I hate clubs. And I'm like, John Bender would have been perfect in a 19... If it was a 1990s movie, he's the hero. (laughs) <laughs> because he's like he's like he, he'd be the perfect guy to listen to Nirvana and be like the system sucks we shouldn't do anything he could hang out with, yeah. with Janice and I've forgotten his name the other Damien in uh, Mean Girls and like give a little yeah, tour of all of the different cliques they'd be, the he'd be kind of part of that counterculture group <laughs> in the 90s but in the 80s he's just a bad apple and we find out that uh, of course that Andrew's a wrestler uh, we find out that Brian's got academic clubs, and he's ridiculed for that. And we find out that Claire's like student council, and they each kind of hate each other because they're not from the same clique. Yeah. And I, I got to ask a question about British high school because I don't know what it was like, but in Canada, 
this is pretty accurate to my high school experience. Like, maybe not as cartoonized and one-dimensional, but you very much had your groups, and they were like, they had their spot in the cafeteria, and they talked to each other, and you really didn't mingle with groups that weren't your own that much. You have classes, but like in social times, you went back to your, your, your people, if you will, to your little clique. What, was it different here? Well, it was, there was a bit of a class system, I suppose. There was more like um, the non-achievers who were in the lower sets, and then you had who mucked about, and then you had the average crowd, and then the you know the it crowd. But everyone really tended to just mingle with each other. I mean, there was no there was no like goth crowd or okay. anything like that. It was just due to sets. Okay. Intelligence and sport. It was, really. just, it was just ability and so, okay. I yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. I guess like clothing is so important, and so like you were able to determine who was like you by how you expressed yourself, clothing wise, or by the finances you did or didn't have by how you dressed clothing wise. Whereas when you but that's why over that's, here, it's, it's not as easy to visually it, separate people. Mm. But that's why over here in Britain we have a, a uniform so that everybody is the same. Yeah. See, there isn't that that barrier. Um, and so then this becomes a game of Bender wants to shut the door and, uh, he takes a screw out of it. And then of course, Vernon comes back in and he's like, why is this door shut? And he's like, I think someone stole a screw, sir. And he instantly knows who did it. Bender did it. Yeah. But, and I've been, it's so weird because for the first time I've watched this film now and I'm closer in age to the teacher character than I am to the student character. And as someone who has this job now, I can relate to that when you have those face-offs with the student and you're like, I can't afford to lose this one. I've got to keep, I've got to hold my ground on this one. Hopefully not the kind of face-off from later. <laughs> no, not, 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 not that. But I, I get the idea of like being sort of like, it is a face-off. You are, you are, it is, it is two, two bulls sort of going by the horns, the established power and, and the young guy who's trying to usurp that power. And... <laughs> Bender is such a smart ass in this because he goes to prop the door open um, with a chair. And he goes, oh, the door's way too heavy, sir. And it's that mock politeness. And, of course, the door slams shut in a way that had to be sped up in post because, like, this thing, like, flies. Like, there's mm-hmm. someone pushing it from behind. And then they decide, well, we'll take these catalogs that hold periodicals and magazines. And, we'll, and we had those in Canada. Like, all our magazines were in there. Oh, okay. And you, like, wedged it in the door. And, of course, he quite rightly goes, but what if there's a fire, sir? Which, if we learn <laughs> about why he's in detention later, funny line. Very yeah. funny line. And uh, then there's a, a pure face-off between the two of them. And... They keep having a face off and Bender won't back down and he keeps back talking. And so he keeps running through it and going, you got another one. You want one? Yeah, I do. Okay, another one. You want another one? I'm like, I've heard this speech. I've made this speech maybe. <laughs> maybe not. Like, you got another one. You got another one. But that idea of like you're trying to just get the kid to back down a little bit just so you can go order has been restored. Just take it down a notch. And um, – Finally, he goes, that's eight. And then, of course, Brian's been keeping track because, of course, he is. He's Brian. He goes, actually, that's only seven, sir. And he says, shut up, Pee Wee. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then it's over and he finally backs down and Vernon leaves the room and the door shuts and he exhales and it's a little bit of humanity I felt from a character who is quite one dimensional throughout yeah, I like that. but he exhales and it's kind of going he doesn't want to be doing that this isn't how he wants to spend his Saturday and in many ways he's the sixth guy of the breakfast club he doesn't want to be there yeah he's in detention no. as well he's in detention as much as they are and you find out he's just as flipping bored as they are. Maybe he didn't do his marking that <laughs> But he week. can't show them. Well, every week, it seems like. It seems he's there every Saturday. <laughs> yeah. And then we have a boredom montage to this blues guitar, which is just full of trailer fodder, where every scene you saw in the trailer like happens in this sequence. Like, Ali Sheedy <laughs> puts her head down. Emilio Estevez gets like the, the string on his hoodie and kind of like plays back and forth with it. It was just, what can we put in the trailer later on? they put Brian getting an erection in the trailer? No, they, they got rid of that. <laughs> it was really weird. Brian had to like adjust himself. That's a weird scene to include, isn't it? Yeah. There's a little, it's a little weird with, with, with Ringwald and, and Hall and, and Hughes. There's, the, there's this uh, sort of relationship, this sort of three-headed, codependent kind of movie-making thing. But that's a really weird shot. There's two kind of under the table crotch shots in this movie and that was one and I went that's really really weird and the other one was also really really weird yep. but we'll get to it <laughs> um, and then we cut to uh, Bender's destroying some books and he's like I, you know this is so because literature is really important he says I don't have any time for Moliere at which point I believe Claire tells him it's actually Moliere at which point he gets angry because everybody else around him feels like he knows it and he gets mad because he's stupid. But we, it's not spelled out to us that way. But that's got to be why he gets angry about it. Once Did again, anybody else know he, it? Sorry, go ahead. Did anybody else notice the book he's tearing up has no writing on the pages? Does it not? It's just blank. It's just blank pages. <laughs> Maybe that's what makes the work such genius. You have to infer from it what as you want. <laughs> I didn't notice that until like now when I watched it. I never noticed it as a kid. I noticed it now, this time around. And then we start getting the idea about getting along with your parents. And we find out that Claire, her mom and her dad, and her they kind of pity. She's kind of between them and plays them off each other like a bit of a game. And Bender's like, well, choose one. And she's like, well, you can't choose one. You love them equally. And he goes, no, that's not true. Choose one. And then Andrew <laughs> talks about what it's like to be at his house. And the pressures he's under and how they have to win and win at all times because you're a winner. I think this scene was actually uh, mimicked by Abed in the pilot of Community, I believe. <laughs> and then we, Brian goes, oh, it's really hard for me in my house. And that's what Bender says. You are a parent's wet dream. <laughs> you are just about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, and then, as happens so often in this film, just when it gets kind of – a bit mellow and a bit maybe there's Bender sets his targets on Claire and asks her if she's ever kissed a boy. And then that turns into it escalates. And there's a bunch of questions about other sexual acts that she has done, but he's doing it in front of everybody and making her seem ve she's very uncomfortable and he keeps progressing and he's purposely humiliating her because she's not comfortable talking about this. And um, I, I'm, I'm very aware right now I'm a guy talking about this. Do any of the ladies on the panel have a, something to share about this scene? Um, I think kind of it's probably become a bit less taboo now to talk about that kind of thing in, in high school. But it's still not something that you want, you know, like the 
sort of confident guy asking you about, especially if you don't have any experience and you're trying to come across as, as being this kind of, you know, prom queen, like idol of all the men and really wanting to be kind of seen in a, a desirable light but not wanting to well, it's like it's like they say later on not wanting to come across as a slut but not wanting to come across as a prude either and i think when you've when you've got this really cocky arrogant guy in your face asking you all these questions it's like <laughs> sorry when he asked that yeah no i never experienced anything like that in high school it took to a little lot later on in um my life and it was then just drunk guys that do it okay and at that point you just kind of go shut up move on like bye yeah, like, it's kind of important to note that like it's a bit different between the between the north america north american high school system and the british high school system so these people would be like a-level students here yeah so yeah. maybe it is a bit more a little bit more time wise right yeah. but like even so it's taken till I was, I should imagine, 18, 19 for people to come up to me and be like, hey, and I just, at that point, you just go, yeah, no, you're not worth it. Like, I think by the time you so, get to that age, you've perhaps got a bit more confidence to be able to answer back to those kind of questions with with just dismissive responses. Because I think if it was the 90s, Liam, and this is a teen movie from the 90s, so Clueless, whatever it might be, this character wouldn't be... a this pure virginal character. If you were the popular girl, it would actually, <laughs> no. you would have sexual experience. Yeah. And, and that would be, it, you know, the, the virgin tag wouldn't be something that you would aspire to for your female character. It would be, you know, if she was popular, she would be um, sexually experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Andrew sees that she's quite uncomfortable and he's in a, and this happens a lot in the start of the movie where he's kind of like her white knight and he stands up and he says to Bender, you stop or I'm going to, again, I'm going I'm to kick your ass. It kind of is his, you know, <laughs> default, which kind of gives you the idea of what home life is like because he's so tightly wound but goes to violence so quickly. And Bender says, who's, who's, who's going to help you take me on? Because Bender's quite a bit, well, he looks bigger in this scene. I don't know if it's the boots or what. Because Estevez, yeah. Estevez is actually taller than him in real life. Really? But yeah, yeah you, you wouldn't get that. Apparently, Those boots must be massive. Apparently during part of the dancing scene, you, you, you can see it. But he goes, just me. And then Bender tries him. And, of course, the champion wrestler takes him down quite easily. Yeah. And he gets up and says, it's not worth it. It's not worth it because I'd kill you. And then your parents would sue. And he kind of goes, yeah, all right, all right. And then he grabs a switchblade and sticks it in the desk. And little known fact, John, uh, uh, Judd Nelson's actual switchblade. <laughs> cool. But all <laughs> I also like in this scene is when Ali Sheedy, her character, Alison, yep. grabs the knife out of shot. Yeah, she like, just takes it out of the chair. Does she really? I did not. And I like to think that she took it so that he didn't use it. Or she's just adding it to her crazy old lady bag collection. Yeah, well, I wrote this well, down. Well, maybe. Liam, was there anything else you wanted to say there? No, just the fact that she took the knife. And I thought, well, because that was escalating, she didn't want that to happen. But that could be that she was just taking it because she was just her. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I, in, that's open to interpretation, isn't it? I wrote this down and I thought it was going to be a really big part of the, the film going forward. And that there was, you know, because she's so kooky, I, I thought probably going forward there was going to be a big scene where she They were like, going to come back from lunch and she's something. like, she's like, <laughs> like <laughs> gutting Brian like a fish. Not quite that, not quite <laughs> that dramatic. But I just thought like somewhere in the climax of the film it would come up or, or they would discover it and there would be a big argument about it. But I don't remember seeing it again in the film and I just thought that was a bit odd. 
and no, it is literally just that little scene, and you just see a hand reach in to the shop, yeah, pull the knife out of yeah. the chair, and take it out again. And this is one. I'd, co- like, to, I'd like to think that was ad libbed. You know that she just did it. In so much, so much. This film's ad lib. Oh, that's so cool. much. Uh, and then enter Carl the Janitor. And originally, Carl the Janitor was supposed to be played by a much more famous guy. He was cast, oh, and he went for it, and he went so cr- – I think he went so crazy with it, he was asked to leave the set. Liam, who was that? Rick Moranis. Yeah, I think, I think he's Canadian. I think he's Canada's own Rick Moranis. Yeah. And he grew a big, thick beard and played it as like a Russian character. And I'm like <laughs> – I'm like, there is so much – like actual meat to the the gentleman who plays the role. I don't have his name in front of me, which I'm really quite. Uh, I, I really kind of regret. Paul Reed. Sorry, oh, no, that's his. That's, that's a character's his, the character's name. name. Yeah. Um, and he plays it with such, I think, a straight heart to it that actually he calls. He makes all the other characters accountable. If it was just a throwaway comedic, like ha ha, you're 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 a goof sidekick. I think I think the character of Carl is actually really important in this film. It's John. He Capitals. is very important. John Capolos. Am I right in thinking he was in 16 Candles as well? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that he's Canadian. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was in 16 Candles as well. So, a great story from this, though, is he was trying to give the kids some advice and said, don't get so intense that accidents happen. And he said, for instance, did you know that on the set of Apocalypse Now, Martin Sheen got so worked up that he gave himself a serious heart attack? Well, Emilio Estevez loses his mind because Emilio Estevez is it's Charlie Sheen's son. son. Now, John Capelos yeah. had Sheen's no... Son. Martin Sheen, sorry, Martin Sheen. And he's talking about Martin Sheen on the, on the set of Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now. And um, Capelos is like, is like beside himself because he had no idea Estevez was related to Martin Sheen. <laughs> and so he apologized and like Estevez said it was okay, but he said it bugged him for, for like decades. And it wasn't until Capitalist just happened to do a guest spot on the West Wing where Martin Sheen was playing the president of the United States. And he tells Martin Sheen the story and Sheen laughs and tells him it's really funny and not to, not to worry about it. And he said he was so relieved because he'd been carrying that around for like 15 years. <laughs> so interesting. Also, how small is Hollywood in the sense that you could have that sort of like chance for redemption like 15 years later? Yeah, Absolutely. So we cut to Gleason. Gleason's bored. Uh, Gleason being, of course, Vernon. He's bored, and he's got like created like some sort of spinning device with like styrofoam <laughs> coffee cups. Some styrofoam cups is great. I This is his detention just as much as anybody else's, and he's just trying to Absolutely. pass the time as well. And so then he comes back and he tells everybody it's lunchtime, and they have to go for a milk run. It turns out because they're all really thirsty. <laughs> And it's kind of funny. I just felt this was appropriate time to bring this up. Uh, on set, Ali Sheedy called Anthony Michael Hall milk and cookies because he looks so sweet and innocent. <laughs> and uh, let's just say that uh, Michael Hall, Anthony Michael Hall did not appreciate that <laughs> nickname, but she called him that anyway. <laughs> and so uh, they send out, this is the first time we get our odd couple kind of going out. We get Andrew and um, Allison. And off they go to get, uh, it's not milk, it's Coke in the end. They never really established that, but they're off to get Coke. And he says, well, what do you like to drink? And she just goes, vodka. <laughs> you like, oh, you like to drink vodka? I loads of it. He said, no, you don't. You're making it up. She goes, no, I do. And it's just, and it's really, we're like 30-something minutes into the film, and it's like her first real spoken sort of line she gets. I think before that, she's just said, ha. Ha, yeah. Ha, yeah. But meanwhile, back in the library, we've got... Um, Bender is sort of interrogating 
um, Brian about whether he's had sex. And he has he's that so whole... obsessed with virginity, He is he? so obsessed with exposing people's virginity. And he's like, yeah, I've done it. He said, you've never got laid. He said, yeah, I've laid plenty of times. And it's that age-old, age-old adage of, yeah, who? You don't know her. She's from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, besides... You've also got to remember, um, Judd Nelson was a lot older than... Yes, he um, was. Michael... Um, what's his name? Anthony, Anthony, Anthony Michael Hall. Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah, that's the guy. Um, yeah, he was, he was a lot younger. Yeah. So, you know, there'd be a little bit of um, his... Was he 16? I think he was 16. I'm pretty sure. Um, so, And Judd Nelson being older would have had that confidence to say all this anyway, and he'd have had his vulnerability anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it works really because, I mean, Judd Nelson's older and looks like, I'm sure there's a streak of gray hair in the front of his in the front yeah, of his yeah, hair stuff. Like, I'm like, yeah. what are you? Patch. I know some men with black hair do get those, oh, like man. even very, very young. But I, I was like, oh, that. come on. Like, um, <laughs> that is not a teenager. I'm curious, Ian, when, when you uh, grow up in Canada and you want to pretend that you're not a virgin, what do you say? Well, you can't say you go, Canada because oh, yeah, that gives it away. from America. I think you have to go. I think you just choose the, the nearest big city. I don't think we were so desperate <laughs> with like, like national boundaries. But then he asks. Canada's big enough anyway. Canada's big enough. But, but then he asks, okay, besides the many women in the Niagara Falls region that you've bedded, is there anybody else? And he kind of makes a head point towards um claire now i thought he was kind of going be cool not in front of claire but it's quite quickly established no no he was trying to insinuate he'd slept with claire and of course bender being the stand-up guy he is just outs him instantly (laughs) and embarrasses him um and then we just kind of and he kind of goes it's i don't i don't you know it's embarrassing telling everybody you're you're a virgin and claire kind of tries to make him feel better which was nice i guess the first sign that sort of these sort of walls are starting to come down and then they go for lunch. And this is interesting because in the actual production of the film, uh, John Hughes made everybody, cast and crew, eat their lunch in the school cafeteria. Oh, cool. They were not allowed to eat it anywhere else. And so this is where we start seeing, and the characters are really well characterized by what they have for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Claire has sushi. Now, in the original script, it was supposed to be pasta salad. Uh, Alice Ali Sheedy, who I think should get a credit for half this film for all the ideas she's brought to it, said, no, 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 Claire would eat sushi. It's more elitist. Also on that note, the costume they picked out for Claire, they had to rush to the Louis Vuitton store in Chicago instead. The only one they have in Chicago and like buy her costume from there because the one they had wasn't fancy enough. So like it's it's like they they weren't quite getting these like easy ways to establish character. Is that half the film's budget then? Million. Yeah, maybe. Um, Uh, and yet, though, one of the things that at least I take from this film is how well the characters are established just by the things, like even before they talk, like when they're dropped off by their parents, when even, even their the lunch of, comes the out, the way they walk into drive. the room is just so full of character. Yeah. And so hearing that a lot of these things weren't necessarily put in by like the writer or the director, you kind of go, yeah, creds to these actors. They did a really good job. Has- the actress who plays Alison, has she done any directing or anything like that? I don't know. Afterwards? I don't really know what she got, she, she got up to. For me, this is really all I know Ali Sheedy from, myself. Oh, no, you don't. Short see. Circuit. Is she really in that? Yes, she's the lead girl in Short Circuit. Oh my word, she is too. Yeah. And she's just credited on Wikipedia as an actress and author. Okay. So Is she also in St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, maybe. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so was Estevez. Yeah. 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 Um, so then we cut to Andrew, 
who's like lunch is like a magician's treasure trove because he keeps grabbing sandwich, 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 like a liter and a half of milk. I said it was like he brought a whole family picnic oh, for lunch. But we get the idea. You're a wrestler. You have to carbo load, but like so much food. And then we have Allison who has this sandwich and she whips out the mortadella or whatever from it and whips it and then pours like sugar and like Captain Crunch cereal and presses it down and bites into it. Now, the, uh, Ali Sheedy apparently was actually really quite health conscious. And so in order to eat this, I don't know how many she would have had to eat of it, if it was just one or if it was multiples throughout the day. I imagine it might have been the latter. She got such a sugar high from the sandwich, they said, <laughs> because her body wasn't used to that sort of level of sugar intake. Besides, she's got that and a giant Coke beside her, right? Yeah. I feel like and she's really small. She's like, yeah, she's really small. Um, I, I felt it was because she's kind of an enigma, isn't she? Yeah. Earlier, there was that scene where she like, sc- like scrapes dandruff out of her hair, so That's it puts gross. snow. Interesting to know. Do you know what that is? It's not actually dandruff. Uh, if you had to make dandruff up, what might you put in its place? Cocaine. It was the 80s, but no, not cocaine. <laughs> sugar. <laughs> not sugar. The budget was low, remember, Georgia? Yeah. Parmesan uh, cheese. We went to Louis for one of them. Parmesan, Parmesan cheese. Oh, yeah, I was never going to get it. Yeah. So, uh, and then finally we cut to Brian and Bender kind of like gets his food out and he's got soup, a carton of apple juice and peanut butter and jelly with the crust cut off. Like this is like the most infantilizing kind of lunch you could have. Like it's, it's just wrong. And this is where Bender decides he's going to do a skit called life at Brian's house. And it's like, mom, son. Yeah, Dad. Do you want to go fishing? Oh, I can't, Dad. I have homework. You can do it on the boat. I love you. No, I love you. And then he cuts that again with what's life going to be like at Bender's house. And this is a different character, but it's the second time they've done this where they've chosen who are your two most different characters in this respect. The perfect home life versus the volatile home life. And you get the idea that he is insulted by both of his parents that his dad beats his mom up, that his dad beats him up. And so the question would go, if you buy what he says, and Andrew, of course, doesn't and calls him out and says, you're making it up. I don't believe a word of it. And Bender pulls back the, the sleeve on his shirt and you see a cigar burn. Um, you're going to go, okay, so why is Bender not fussed about not being in detention every Saturday? Well, what's the alternative? Yeah, Being at home? It's going to say sit, sitting six. Sorry, sitting eight hours in a detention hall sounds a lot better than his home life, to be quite honest. Who's so you it? can't really blame him, can you? Because where was Bender's lunch? Yep. It wasn't any. He didn't have a lunch, does he? No. So if you look at Bender as a, as a child of abuse and a child of neglect, mm-hmm. um, I think it explains the volatility of his behavior. I think you suddenly understand everything about his character yeah. in this scene. And it's like, it doesn't justify, oh. but you understand, yes. Yeah. And um, and then he freaks out after making the confession, showing some weakness and vulnerability, as I think is believable for that macho yeah. alpha sort of type. And he's got yeah. some great upper body strength because he like jumps up and like lifts his body up by just like his forearms and his, his, his biceps and like over the, the railing. Talk about a library build as well. If you built that from scratch, like well done. You've got like a yeah. floor. Jeez. And these like really fancy like uh, staircases that come down and around with platforms and just great. And then without any reason, they're all okay and they break out. 
We don't know why they've left or who's made the speech about because a minute ago they're like all hating each other. Now they're all cool and breaking out together. The first cut of the film came in at two and a half hours long. So I think something's been cut here. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah. Because they're going out. We have no reason to know why they know Vernon's not in his office. They just seem to know. And they break out because they're going to go get, as we find out, Bender's weed out of his locker. (laughs) And um, (laughs) Brian's kind of going, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And then he looks at Ali and goes, do you approve of this? And this is right after he's been told by Andrew, you ask him a more question, I'll, I'll, I'll like beat you up. <laughs> so like, it's not going well for him. And then they determine they have to get back before Vernon because Vernon's on his way back, they find out. And the way that Andrew wants him to go has a gate in front of it for no other reason than just movies got a movie and we need, we need some sort of a plot point. And Bender sacrifices himself for the group. And starts making all this noise and banging on the lockers. And there's a great Singing. scene where he plays basketball by himself. <laughs> and he's like, like a guy who clearly couldn't care less about basketball. But he's like doing his own like play-by-play as he wins the championship. <laughs> and Does anybody else notice at the time as well he's wearing a different trainer on one foot? He's got like a, a shoe off or something. Because he leaves a shoe. There's a boot left behind in the gym. Yeah. And then he, when he gets yeah. back to the library, he's got both shoes on again. Oh. Yeah. Bit of a weird one there. Um, and so before he takes off, he like sticks his weed down Brian's trousers and like, watch this for me. And so he goes back into the room and they start talking about what happens if something's on fire. You wouldn't, what if your dope was on fire? And then Vernon starts embarrassing him and humiliating him in front of everybody and says he's a bum. Look at him in five years. Don't ask for John Bender because he'll be in jail. And then he takes Bender and he puts him in like a broom closet. Yeah. And he starts bragging that he makes $31,000 a year, which in modern money is like $61,000 a year. So that's like about 55,000 pounds, maybe. Yeah. But, it's a pretty decent teacher's salary, it's okay. isn't it? Like, it's okay. I don't know if it's like brag to everybody how much money you make, but, it, but it's, but it's yeah. definitely okay. It's pretty yeah. decent. Yeah. yeah. But then he says, if I see you in three years, you know what's going to happen? He says, I'm going to assault you. <laughs> and at this point, Judd Nelson props to him because he acts well in this scene, I think. His eyes go really, really big and he looks really vulnerable. And um, Vernon says, go on, take a shot. And he sticks his chin out. Just take a shot. Take the first shot. Who are they going to believe? A loser like you or me? I'm respected. I'm a, I'm a great guy or a neat guy. A swell guy is what he calls himself. I'm a swell guy. And you're you. And he doesn't do it at all. And um, when he lifts his fist up, you can see Judd Nelson kind of flinches. And it's because he said after the fact he re- that um, um, Paul Gleason got so into the scene, he really thought he was going to punch him. Wow. As you say, it did look very, very well done. So if it, it seems like he actually just might have punched him, then I mean, that's probably why it looked so realistic. This might be a good time to talk for a moment about how do we think Paul Gleason does in this film? Because he is the antagonist, right? Yeah. So how is he? Because a lot of the reviews of the time kind of downplayed his performance and said he felt like he was miscast. I think he's kind of perfect, but maybe it's just because I grew up with it. No, I, I really like it. Like the sort of guy who's like, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, he was a big man. He was a more educated version of... Uh, John Bender, you know what I mean? Like he was the big stud. He was like, and now times passed him by, and he's like, "Come on, what about?" And he's angry as well. 
Yeah. And his life's, you might brag about how much money you make. You're still here stuck on a Saturday with the kids. I think he does a good job. I think yeah, he does I a really think. good job. Yeah, I really okay. like his performance. I, I was just curious. Yeah. I, w- I wasn't expecting this scene. It kind of, it felt a bit sudden to me and, and it did Oh, I was okay me. with it. I felt like it um, built to this naturally. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I really And he creates, he creates a lot of tension as well, doesn't he? Within the movie. Yeah. Gleason, I think you have to because you need someone yeah. who can put Bender in check and put Bender in check publicly as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because other people are going to have to make that step later in the movie and nobody can stand up to him and you don't get there if someone else doesn't do it. The first time is kind of when Gleason does it, a Vernon. The second time is when Estevez takes him down to the ground wrestling and then yeah. he really gets out of them the next time. So then... Like two minutes later, Bender's found a way out. He's like crawling through the ceiling tiles and he's telling some sort of a joke. I didn't really catch what the joke was about, but it's like a dirty joke that he's narrating to himself. Because that's what I you do. I don't think we actually get the punchline because there he is, goes through the, the thing. There yeah. is no punchline. It was never designed. No, there isn't. They, they no. tried even. They tried to write a punchline to it and they couldn't come up with one that works. Because oh. the, pun- <laughs> the punchline's going to be, for forgot my pencil, right? Yeah. <laughs> but he goes falling through the ceiling. Thank God it's on the upper level. <laughs> <laughs> Not the big center yeah. part. <laughs> you know, I was really hoping that there was going to be a punchline to this joke that you had written no. down in your notes to be able to tell us on the podcast. That's such a shame. No. And so uh, he comes in, and of course, um, Vernon's heard the commotion. And at this point, Bender's made his way down to where everybody else is. And as he comes through the door, he ducks underneath a table where um, Molly Ringwald's character, Claire, and Andrew are sitting. And he ends up underneath a table where Molly Ringwald's character is. And this is a good time to sort of segue for a minute and go, Molly Ringwald, years later, wrote a piece for The New Yorker where she talked about going back and looking at uh, Breakfast Club through the eyes of the Me Too movement. <laughs> and she said she watched it for the first time with her daughter. And her daughter was 10. And she went, trust me, I've got thoughts about, in hindsight, about watching it with, with a 10-year-old. Now, the, the legs and the crotch you see at this point when we're – for some reason, John Hughes has to give us a point of view shot of jo- what John Bender is looking at, which is really yeah. weird. Because if he disappears underneath the table and then she jumps, we can infer what that could mean. It exactly. could mean that he touched her. It could – that she just felt something on her thigh or somewhere else. And we can infer that. But why did you have to give me a point of view shot of this? Now, she does say, not my legs, not my body at that point, because um, she's too young to be even asked to do a shot like that at that time. Yeah. Um, but why do we need this? And especially if you consider how the film's going to end, what's the message when John Bender acts the way he does? Because he's very aggressive, mean. Whenever he's rebuffed by her, he gets uh, verbally abusive. And yet at the end, he's going to be rewarded for this. And Mm. so I'm sitting there going, I agree. This is bad. If these were real people, I have an issue with this. Absolutely. Uh, I also, if you want to talk about it, I have an issue with, you know, there's a media theorist called Lisbeth Van Zunen who believes that you take your ideas from gender based on what you see. Some men watch this and learn that to do this is to be part of what being a man is. To be a man is you can, you can, you can get away with this sort of stuff. Yeah. Women look at this and go, okay, as a woman, you need to kind of just re- 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 rebuff a guy and then sort of treat him nicely again because that's what being a woman is. I totally agree with that theory, yeah. Um, I would also go, let's not forget the other films being made at this time are porkies. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like 
uh, just sexual romp comedies, yeah. films made from by men for teenage boys. And so yeah. you're going if you look at it through that curve, John Hughes is without question a better. He's, he's doing a better job of this than they are. But looking yeah. back, you still go, oh. Now, at the same point, I'm sitting back going, it's a product of 1985. I also have to get yeah. that through my head. And going, um, so I'm going, I wouldn't approve of it if it was written new today. But at the same breath, going back and looking at it and going, I've seen this movie before. There's a, there's a thing in history where you go, the past is a different country. You don't live there. And we don't live in 1985 anymore. So we can't go back to 1985 and go, well, you guys should have known better. and that, 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 Because they didn't. Because it was a journey. Yeah. And they were at that point then and we're at this point now. And thankfully, we've learned yeah. a lot between that point and this point. But you can't throw away all the art you made, I think, in 1985. Some no. of it, you absolutely can. There's some stuff I'd go, it's, it's just trash. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Now, again, I'm aware, Liam, that you and I are the men in this conversation. So, Georgia, <laughs> yeah. I've just gone on a rant. What's your thoughts on it? Um, no, I think it's important that we still view these things and still have them and use them as teaching tools of how far we've come and what it shouldn't be. Um, unfortunately, some people still get these and don't see that version of it they see that still as the idealized life but there's definitely power in keeping them and watching them and knowing that they are not what is represented today but how far they've come and then you get the conversation of how this is achieved and what other differences there are between then and now and it's important for education because if we forget everything we just drift back to where we were like there is no point in pretending that these things didn't happen because it's insulting to the people that went through them. Ellie? Yeah, I think I agree with Georgia on that one. Okay. don't really have a lot else to add. Uh, to be fair, Molly Ringwald does not say that she regrets doing the film or felt exploited. It was just the idea of how do you view these films. And, looked, and she looked at a lot of John Hughes films and work in general. And it's a bit hard because John Hughes isn't around anymore to give us his side of it either which might have been nice to have had as, as, a, as a rebuttal. Unfortunately, the conversations are now all one-sided. But uh, I can say, if it's me, even in 85, I don't think that shot's necessary of the point of view no, shot. I, I think that's I one where I'm going, those two, those, those two crotch shots, I, I just don't see, see, see the point of it. What was the purpose behind it? I just think the fact that we're, kind of, we're watching it now and seeing it as like, oh, that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So then we have a scene where finally they get the weed out, and uh, they're going to get high. And just in case you're curious, it was oregano they were smoking. Um, and they're not going to do it. And then one by one, everybody except for Allison goes. Like, Allison's the first one you would think would go back there and be up for it, and she won't do it. She has a good look, yeah. though. Which is, which is credit, though, because, you know, she's kind of, you know, in a, in a film about peer pressure, she very quietly stands up for I don't want to do this I guess whereas Andrew clearly doesn't want to do it and then can't not do it and so he gets high and then I'm sorry but like I come from Canada and although it was never my 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 thing there were a lot of students you would see who got high on marijuana in small town (laughs) Canada and I never saw one of them react to weed the way Emilio Estevez's character does. <laughs> like, he's acting like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street with, like, coke <laughs> running down his nose. 
Like he's beating his chest, dancing around. He invents parkour as he jumps off the wall to the side. And manages to make the foreign language's he's, office look like a steam room. Yeah, he screams. Yeah, he hot boxes to the point where like, and then he screams so loud, the glass breaks inside the foreign <laughs> language's room in the library. I'm like, this is insane. I liked Brian's. Yeah stoner acting though brian stoner acting he's actually doing an old richard pryor stand-up comedy routine you know who richard pryor is right liam yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. the whole chicks can't out hold their smoke that's actually from a richard pryor stand-up thing and i believe oh, he okay. ad-libs that i believe he does yeah. and it's like there's also like we have these traveling sunglasses that at the start of the movie judd nelson had them then emilio estevez has them and now <laughs> brian's got them for a while I do love Brian. I'm actually wondering. I think he's great. Because I stopped watching. I wonder if all five characters at some point wear the glasses. That would be really interesting. Because why have three of them? I'm I'm seeing in my head Molly Ringwald wearing them, but I don't know if I'm just doing that myself or (laughs) if it actually happened. And so they start going through each other's wallets. I'm not going to spend too much time here. But there's a great line where Brian has the worst fake ID they've ever seen. Now, you've made yourself 60-something years old. Why, why do you, of all people, Brian, need a fake ID? And he goes, without a, a blink, because I want to vote. And he, and he ad-libbed that line. Oh, wow. Which I love. That's great. Um, it's so in character as well. He's really, really he would, good. He yeah. would, yeah. Which is, I think it's important you say about Georgia because he could easily be overlooked because it's such an understated performance when you have these bigger characters all around you. He's yeah. he, he's a really kind of powerful performance. Um, and then they started the idea that um, Allison starts at the idea that her home life is unsatisfying. And at first, Andrew starts to make fun of her for it and kind of goes, all our home lives are, are, are unsatisfying. She gets mad and storms off. And he goes to make it right and finally goes, well, what is it? And she goes, they ignore me. And he gets that. He goes, okay, yeah, yeah. I, he kinda, yeah. His dad definitely doesn't ignore him, but he can, I think he can understand that. Yeah. I did think it was really interesting at the start of the film when she gets out of the car as well that she's the only one that gets dropped off but doesn't have any kind of conversation with her parents. She's also in the back seat. Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of goes to the front window as though to kind of say goodbye or something and they just drive and off. They drive and off, yeah. They ignore her and... I thought that was an interesting kind of callback to that. At this point, um, was it Carlson? Is that his name? Vernon. Vernon Vernon. is down in, he's going through some, I guess he's just got to be caught doing something he shouldn't be. So he's down in the basement going through like personnel files. (laughs) And Carl, who earlier had said he's the eyes and ears of his school, he sees and hears everything. He kind of accosts Vernon, Richard, and basically says, you're going to give me 50 bucks and, and I'll keep this quiet, but otherwise I'm going to talk to some people. And they start having a heart-to-heart, which I thought was another important scene where he kind of tells the kids the lay of the land. Now he's going to tell, the, he's going to tell Vernon the lay of the land and go, look, you thought this was going to be a fun job and then you found out it was work and you don't like that. Kids don't change. You've changed. You've gotten old. Da, 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 da. And they kind of sit there and bemoan uh, where it's kind of where life is going. But it, it's kind of nice to see him humanize somewhat. I mean, he's still a scumbag. He tried to beat up. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, maybe if, if... Obviously, John Bender's never going to open up to him about life at home. No. So to Vernon, he sees John Bender as the troublemaker that he appears to be. He's just the, 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 the pain in your side every day. So I'm not excusing it, but I'm going, if he's got a one-dimensional view, there may be a reason for that. Mm. You know, today, 
I'm sure we would have people on staff who would be looking into certain elements and we'd be a lot more aware. In the 80s, I'm not sure you had as much of that at all. No, in the 90s. Yeah, probably, yeah, I don't think so. In the early 90s, no way. No. Um, and so um, then we have a scene, and we keep with the scene for a while, and I'll try and get through this, but it's the one where they're all sat on the floor of a library, and it's kind of the iconic shot, I think, um, where they're kind of all sitting around in like a, a, a semicircle. Um, and Emilio Estevez is in the center and they're talking about things and it starts with what would you do for a million dollars and uh, this quickly and apparently the I found some research that suggested most of this scene coming up is ad-libbed now how many days of footage they shot I don't know but we find everybody's reason for why we start the fire in this bit sorry why they're in detention and so um, Allison represents herself as a nymphomaniac who has tons of sex with her psychologist and kind of bullies, uh, starts the bullying of Claire into whether she's a virgin or not. And at one point, they shoot everybody else say in their moments, but then they keep the camera on Molly Ringwald and you just hear all the voices badgering her as we get a close-up of her face getting agitated. Now, that was a really interesting choice. Overall, I'm not that big on the cinematography in this film, but that was an interesting choice to keep the camera on Ringwald and not so we can see her becoming uncomfortable and just like she's not getting relief from it, we're not getting relief from it until finally yeah. she goes, oh, no, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't done any of it. And then Allison goes, yeah, me, me either. I'm just a compulsive liar. And I'm like, that, <laughs> is, that is kind of low. I mean, that's kind of some girl-on-girl crime, isn't it? Yeah. Like she didn't want to yeah. give that information up. But this time it wasn't Bender. It was a girl who set her up like that. But we were setting up this idea of, and this is the thing, and uh, Allison says this, it, you're, you're stuck. It's a trap. If you say you haven't had sex, then you're a prude. If you say you have had sex, you're a slut. And that speaks to a viewpoint that I hope we're growing away from, but... I, I know for a fact that my generation, at least at least my experience of my high school time, were very much it was very much the minority that still thought like that. That's good. Um, which is really good. There's no easy, real easy way to segue over this. So let's talk about Andrew's confession, where he starts talking about why he's in detention, a conversation he he ducked last time. And he he tapes some poor boy's butt cheeks together. And he says that he did it because of his dad. And his dad's always talking about all what he got up to in school. And then all of a sudden, he was sitting outside the principal's office. And he goes, all I could think about was, I think the kid's name was Archie or Arthur or something like that. All I can think about was him having to go home to his dad and explain what happened at school that day. And where he gets to look like a hero to his old man, this other boy gets to look like a loser and a victim and be mortified and humiliated in front of his dad. And the power of that father-son bond. And uh, I don't know. I think we've all done something at some point in school that we went, really wish I hadn't done that. I I have. I mean, when I was a kid, I've done, I, I did a couple of things and I'm like, yeah, I kind of hurt someone and didn't think enough about the consequences. But what it, was, it seems funny in the moment and then you don't think about what the, the, the tale of that's going to be. Nothing as bad as what yeah. happened in the movie or anything like that, but just things where you're going... Right. If you could go back and talk to, you know, these people, you'd go, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and Bender, bless him, has the perfect thing. He says, sounds like your old man and my old man should go bowling sometime. And that seems to work. Um, yeah. And then Brian starts talking about his grades and they all discount him. But he says, I don't like myself. And he's failing shop because he can't make a lamp. 
And then he starts kind of implying I should be good at shop because it's full. He just says it's kind of basically says it's full of dummies. And this is what Bender can do. And he says, I take shop. He goes, yeah, but it's not yeah. trig. He says, I don't care about trig. Why can't you figure out shop? You sound like you're a genius yourself. And Brian can't let go of that sort of mindset that, no, no, being smart means you can pass an exam. Not the idea of intelligence in a variety of ways. Or even the idea about being thoughtful about other people who might not be as academically inclined. And to be fair, I'm not sure he learns that lesson. No, I don't think he does I don't either. know if he does. Um, then they start talking about what can we do, and it all builds up to um, lipstick in the bra. Yeah. Tell you what, Molly Ringwald never did that. Oh, like it, she doesn't actually do it. Like she puts the she puts yeah. the lipstick in her own bra, but like they cut yeah. away so much, she doesn't actually do the movement. They, they sort of get one shot. Okay, now move your head. No, get that shot. Now do this. Now get this shot. They take it out when they like, apply the lipstick, and then she puts her head up, and then that's that's so all done through camera trickery, unfortunately. So ironically, what can you do? She can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have, oh geez, a really powerful scene where um or moment where Molly Ringwald's character starts comparing herself to John Bender and Bender's not having this. Don't you compare yourself to me. You have everything and I have nothing. And this is the great irony of life because they put y'all together, don't they? And they make you think y'all are equal and you're going, uh, I mean, when I was in high school, I was not one of the wealthy kids far from it. I was very much on the other side of it. And you'd see these people who have, and I see in university too, because I was working to put myself through uni, other people, their parents were putting them through and they'd sit there and they have no idea about the the privilege they live with. And this is before we even use those words, but they have no idea with how good they have it. Can we, can we say that instead? And the idea that they don't have to worry about that. And there's nothing wrong with going, my dad bought me some earrings and I think they're pretty and I want to wear them. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you are one of the kids who doesn't have anything, you look at that earring as a sign all the time of how much you don't have. And it's not because you've done anything right or you've done anything wrong. It's just that you were born to the family you were born to. And how do you overcome that disadvantage, if anything like that? But again, you have to go to school and pretend we're all the same. But, you know, it was certain kids got the cars and certain kids got this and other kids didn't. And how do you sort of reconcile that? And so... On some level, I understood the frustration that Bender's presenting here because I'm going, I remember being one of the have-nots at a school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then we start a conversation about it's inevitable. We're all going to turn into our parents. And they, I think Claire goes, not me. And Allison goes, no, it happens. When you grow up, your heart dies. And that was Molly Ringwald's favorite line in 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 the film. And it was delivered by someone else. But yeah. When you grow up, your heart dies. I hope that's not true. I and hope then that's not true. Brian goes, what's going to happen? I don't think you two will ever grow up if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, I agree. Not. I agree. Yeah. Brian goes, what's going to happen on Monday? Are we still going to be friends? And Claire, to her credit, goes, probably not. She goes, what? And she goes, well, it's, you know. It, and my question is, is she wrong? I mean, is this far too simplistic of a thing? We're going to have one conversation on one Saturday and we're going to fix the way high school politics works? She's not wrong, but she doesn't have to be so blunt about it. it. What's the right thing to do here? Here's a good question. What is the right thing? Is the right thing to be honest or is the right thing to 
let him have his heart broken on Monday in front of everybody. No, she did right. She did right on the day. But it's the way that she then really goes into it and makes these comparisons, and it's it's very easy to kind of be the one who says, "Oh well, me and my friends won't. My friends won't like you, so we can't talk." But I'll still have all of my friends. But you'll be the one that's sat there without any. Well, he does have friends. Although he also, we didn't mention this, he does know the janitor. And the janitor says hi to him and he won't reciprocate. Like, that's the one he's embarrassed about because there's a, the, the sort of trope that the nerds hang out with the, with the janitor, eat their lunch with the janitor. It's the only one who they can sort of befriend. And it's just this whole microcosm. And I think what we see with, with, with Vernon and Carl shows us that these distinctions don't go away. No. When you age, it's, it's the janitor and it's the teacher, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but so, you know, Allison says, I don't have any friends, but if, but if, if I did, I think they'd be good people and they would, they would like you, Brian. But I mean, and, and Bender really goes for it and says, do you think, and he really calls out the two populars, the princess and the athlete and says, are you really going to hang out with Brian? Are you really going to do that? And he says, what would you do if you walk around with me? And it's like, well, up until now, you've just been sexually harassing her the whole time. So I, I don't really see how that's going to happen, <laughs> he said. Um, and the, I think the line, which is, because he goes, I, Brian says, I know my, my friends would all accept you. And Claire goes, your friends wouldn't mind because you look up to us. And again, she's not wrong. No, she's not. And I don't like her for that. But she's right. I mean, you take, you, know, you take any social group, there's always sort of a social structure. There's always eventually establishes the cool kid club. Of course. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, you know, everybody's sort of placing themselves politically within the situation to go. And if the cool kid club ever invites you up, you mean generally people go, yeah, all right, all right, all right. As opposed to not. Yeah. yeah no, I, think you're, I think you're completely right. And it's sad, but she is, she is right in that situation. Um, but I think they kind of start to rectify it by the end. Yeah, I think so. I, I, don't, think, I, think, I don't think the conversation's done as much as it is done. It's not done. Yeah. yeah. yeah she, conceited, she's the one character he? I don't like, even at the end. <sighs> yeah, yeah I, I could hear you. Actually, it's a really interesting question. Yeah. And we're just coming to the end of that. We're almost there. Um, so Brian's confession. He was a uh, failing shop, and he couldn't have an F. And so he was going to kill himself, and he brings in a flare gun. Heavy stuff. Mm. Heavy stuff movie. I mean, up until now, you've taped up guys' butt cheeks together, and there's a little bit of family. I mean, family abuse, which is not cool, but there's a huge step between that and kill yourself. And it's the guy who we assume, through John Bender's, told us there's the perfect life. He's the parents' wet dream, and yet everybody's going. You don't know the pressure he's under because what, what does his parents say when they drop him off? You've got to study. Yeah, but yeah. the kid's got like Get an A average. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's shop. He can't. I can relate to this. If I taken shop, oh my god. You know what I mean? Like, I can do many things. The minute you're like, make something with these hands, it's probably not happening. <laughs> We're on the opposite. Yeah. So the, the idea <laughs> being like, Bender. what could you, yeah. So he's going, I made this decision out of ignorance, thinking it was an easy A, and now it's going to cost me my perfect GPA. And no matter how hard I study, I can't overcome this. And therefore, he's going to kill himself. And of course, the joke is it's a flare gun, and the flare gun goes off in his locker. And then Allison confesses she's only here because she has nothing better to do. At which point you go, do we believe her? 
Because she's a compulsive liar, no. and we know she's a compulsive. I still and believe she her. Stuff. I still I believe, believe her. her. I do. Uh, we've already seen her steal a knife and a padlock in yeah. this film, and have a bag full of just random things. Which I, I wouldn't know. be surprised if, if the knife, the padlock, and also the sunglasses are in that bag that she tips out. If you look more carefully. And then, so we know that time is passing. We have another montage of dancing. And the wallet. And what? She steals Brian's. Wallet. She steals Brian's wallet. Yeah, yeah, but she gives it back. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have a montage of dancing. And uh, who's the best dancer? Because this includes the whole, like, three people on top of the whatever. And, like, like the, 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 the uh, What's his face? Uh, what's he called? Emilio Estevez. Emilio. Ju- no, Judd Nelson. The... Judd. I think he's the best. I, I, I think I'm with you on that. I think Judd Nelson is the best. Yeah. They... Is it him that goes across the yeah. banister? Yeah. yeah. They all dance. Because he's also, like, he doesn't care. His hands are in his pockets. But he's still yeah. so. I'll... I am just... not. Liam, you would do that. I would be terrible. (laughs) I just really enjoyed in this scene how freely they're all dancing. It's all like that kind of complete freedom. Just I don't care who's watching. It's funny you say that because do you know why they all dance? Because originally Molly Ringwald was supposed to be the only one dancing, and she wouldn't do it by herself. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody had to get shot dancing, and she says she regrets it now because it comes off like like in like an MTV music video thing. Liked yeah. it. I, I thought it was good. Scene. I do. I do. I like it too. It's just that it's like that kind of really personal thing that you you only ever dance like that if you're, you know, on your. It's that kind of like dancing around the living room when no one's yeah. watching to and the idea of music. You've exposed everything. So what's there left for people exactly. to see you dance? Be you know, yeah. Be it's comfortable just, in your own skin. It's that kind of dancing that just gives you such a freeing feeling, and everything is open, and it just it just makes you feel warm. Did anybody catch the lyrics to this song? Because I I heard them and went, "You've got to be kidding me!" I yes. seem to remember thinking that whilst it was on, but I can't remember what they were. The only line I could pick out went, "We're really not so different after all." <laughs> went, yes, yes, I did pick that one up. Little too on the nose, maybe movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like like show don't tell is is the old storytelling device. I'm like you are telling me hard in this. But they've also just kind of shot that down, haven't they? Like oh, yeah. we're all the same. Oh no, actually we're not going to hang out on Monday. So no. Bender returns to his broom closet, and they tell Brian you should write the paper for us. And Brian goes, you just don't want to write. It. And she goes, yeah. He goes, but also you're the smartest. And he kind of goes. Well, you know, yeah. And he looks, and she goes, plus we trust you. Are you sure? And then he goes, yeah, we trust you. And he goes, okay. And he goes to write it down. At which point I'm going, okay, now I'm expecting some greatness from this kid. Hang on a second. <laughs> so then Claire goes, well, Claire finds Allison and basically starts giving her a makeover. And she goes, why are you so, being so nice to me? And the response is, because you're letting me. And I'm going, wait, we're like 15 minutes away from Claire saying she wouldn't be friends with her on Monday. Like, no, you're not, yeah. you're not this good person underneath at all. Nope. And second, uh, does Allison need a makeover? No. Nope. Allison's needs- way no. cooler with her old look. She just needs yeah, a hair- hairbrush. Oh, I, I was, she's the most interesting one as far as the, ah. Oh. But she's also gorgeous. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I thought when you put her in the dress, I'm like, she's just everything unique about her just got sort of taken away. Yeah, yeah. And also, where did it come from? Where did the clothes come from? (laughs) Does Claire, who's does she just happen to be carrying her? Like the one who's supposed to be carrying, unless that was in her bag. (laughs) Unless amongst all the stuff in this bag was a complete change of clothes. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Um, and so then 
Claire goes and sees Bender and lets herself into the broom closet. Now, hang on a second, because I recall Vernon locking that thing. When he puts him in there, he locks him in there. Unless when he puts him... No, because he never finds out that he's there. When he comes and gets his pencil, Vernon never realizes he's not there. So yeah, she lets herself in. I don't know how she gets in. And she kind of... And to be fair... He waits for her to kiss him, and he goes, why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. So now the movie's going, yeah, you might have done some seedy business underneath the desk, but I know you're really not going to force yourself on me, John Bender. <laughs> I'm going. Plus, you've had all the talk of how he's got loads of different girlfriends, yeah. and he won't well, get rid of them, and is this po- them all along. Is this posturing? I, we didn't talk about this, but the idea, but they're going through just wallets. Look at all the girlfriends you have. And he's like, yeah, summer, summer. I, I think it's that idea that guys brag about you know, they exaggerate how many women they've they've slept with, whereas girls are notorious in, in, in culture for doing the opposite. If guys, you know, girls, you want to be the, the, the virginal pure one and the guys you want to be uh, the stud. Isn't it like guys, you have to times it by three and girls, you have to divide it by three. Is it is it take? I don't know what it is. Is, is, is there a website where you can calculate this? I don't know. <laughs> um, and so... <laughs> Bender to his credit goes. You know how you you uh, you pit your parents against each other and you use things to weaponize. He said, "Wouldn't I be outstanding in that capacity?" <laughs> Why, God bless you, John Bender. He's so complex. He yeah. is so complex. Um, and then they all go to leave. Detention's over. Carl is at the door saying goodbye to them. Not the teacher. Carl's doing it. Um. Did you notice at the oh, beginning sorry. of the film, Carl is uh, a picture. Is he really? Yeah, he's one of the pictures okay. of like, um, again, I didn't notice this until later on when I watched it again. Um, like, what are they, like, class year or something? Or he was quite, I oh, don't know. Like man of the year. Be, sorry? It was like man of the year or something like it, that. Is he, is he like yeah. a former student or is this like him as his role as a janitor he's been honored for? No, as, as a student. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, he's a janitor now. Yeah. So, it's just saying what he was in high school oh, peaking. what he is now. I wonder if that's something that got cut because that's a really interesting speech. Yeah. You know, don't think you're all hot because you do well in high school. You know, this is what, oh, that's a really good speech. Yeah, isn't it? Oh, uh, that would have been good. Um, yeah. So of course there's there's but before they leave, um, Andrew and Allison and he sees her and kind of goes, "Wow, you look." Basically, it's wow. It takes forever, but it's you look like a girl. You look yeah. different, but oh, in a good way. Am I pretty? Yes, you're pretty. Oh, great! And so they all leave and they've coupled up, except for Brian. And here's an issue I have: there are three virgins in this story, right? We partner two of them up with the virile men. Judd Nelson gets the princess. The sort of head case goes with the stud athlete. And yet, not virgin boy is still going to be... He's the only one who walks out by himself. He's the only one who doesn't have a moment at the end. And he gets back in the car. And rather than his mom, he gets in the car with his dad. And his dad, Liam, do you happen to know who plays his dad? Uh, John Hughes. John Hughes, the writer <laughs> and director. Yeah, he gets, he yeah. gets himself in his movie, which I can respect. A little cameo is all good. And then we have some gifts given. So Allison rips the wrestling Give patch. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He doesn't like yell at her. I guess <laughs> rips the patch off his jacket, and off she goes. And um, 
Claire gives after some heavy kissing. Uh, Claire gives uh, John Bender the earring, which he instantly puts in his ear, and it's a nice moment of sentiment, I think, from a character we've seen have be so damaged throughout. And uh, we get the narration of the final letter as written by Brian. And it's the same thing as being, you can see us as you see us, a princess, uh, a psycho, whatever it was they called them, an athlete, a criminal, yeah, yeah, a brain. But we are who we are, yada, 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 signed, the breakfast club. And I was sitting there going, no, no, he specifically asked for a thousand words, Brian. That's like 75 (laughs) (laughs) like you're supposed they chose you because you were the smart one like yeah you didn't really i'd be writing in the margins you know this is a great start to a much longer essay (laughs) but do you think he did it out of defiance no no because no one no one no one wants to sit in the cinema you have to like listen to it all through the credits he's still going on (laughs) and furthermore to that point It's much more moving when it's short and sweet. And also it when is. it's been written in five minutes, he'd have to pad it out with loads of waffle as well. So you would just have like, and furthermore to that point, furthermore because and such, alas, because therefore this happened. Indeed. It would just be words. So there was talk in an original sort of plan when this film came out was they would come back and sort of revisit it every 10 years. Kind of similar to, uh, like, uh, the before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight kind of combination. Love those movies. Yeah. But the problem was you couldn't do it for a few reasons. Number one being Judd Nelson and John Hughes hated each other by the end of it. So much so that when John Hughes dies, Judd Nelson doesn't even appear in, like, the tribute film to him at the end. Wow. Like, it it was super burnt bridges on this one. And then on that note... Something kind of happens in the next couple years between that triangle we talked about of Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, and John Hughes. So Anthony Michael Hall is the first one to sort of step away. Um, Because up until now, these have kind of been his two muses. He had written a bunch of films with these two as sort of the main characters always in his head. Yeah. And um, he went ahead and uh, he wanted him to come back for uh, 16 Candles for the role of Ducky which ultimately went to John Cryer from Two and a Half Men because Anthony Michael Hall turned it down. And then after Sixteen Candles, Molly Ringwald went, I think I'm done playing teenager movies. I want to go ahead and try and be an adult actress. And he took that really, really badly. And they had a massive falling out and never really reconciled. And there's a weird energy, I think, in this. Sixteen Candles, do you mean um, Pretty in Pink? Oh, maybe I didn't mean Pretty in Pink. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Because yeah, they were sorry. in Sixteen Candles. I do mean Pretty in Pink. Thank you. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. he wasn't a very forgiving man. It just seems like there was this really. I mean, when when he was filming, he would get um, Molly Ringwald's mum to come in every night and look at the daily. So he'd obviously established himself, and they would go out together as like a three person unit. They'd go to like nightclubs as the three of them. Really? So yeah, it's kind of a weird energy. And then when they that sort is. of cut him off. It seems like he couldn't deal with that. And so he'd go on and, and he'd switch gears and stop doing teen movies, a genre he more or less creates. And he stops doing that. And instead, he starts doing family films and does Uncle Buck, which I hate. And, uh, I whole, love Uncle oh, Buck. Do you really? Uh, <laughs> start Canada's own John Candy, but no. And then, I love it. And then he does Home Alone, yeah. which uh, I can at least appreciate the place it holds culturally, but still not, not, not a big fan of Home Alone either. But oh, they'd be his most they'd be his most commercially successful films. Yeah. But so obviously you, you can't do the sequels anymore at that point. So um yeah. 
such is. Does he do Home Alone too as well? Uh, I would assume so. I would assume that's all part of um, parcel his the thing. The one who plays Allison is in Home Alone too. Oh, is she really? Yeah. Is she? What does she play? I don't know. I just saw it. Oh, okay. When I looked at her earlier when I well, anyway, um, so uh, let's go ahead and just talk a few things yes. through. Oh, yes. yes, Ali Sheedy is in there. Who is she? She plays the girl at the counter, the ticket agent. When, oh, is she really? When he's, um, yeah, at the airport. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. That's cool. So let's talk around. We'll do the usual sort of thing. Let's go Liam, Georgia, Ellie. Uh, favorite character? Maybe more than that. Who did you identify most with, maybe, the first time you saw it? Let's start with that. Okay, yeah, there's two different answers. Yeah, here. so, so who do you identify one. most with, maybe, or did identify most with at the time? Bender, Judd Nelson's character. Okay. Georgia? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Was, was no, there, no, no, no. Just saying that when I watched it the first time and a few times as a child, uh, he was the character I most identified with. Georgia? Um, that's pretty difficult because I think I'm the sixth Breakfast Club member. I'm more like the janitor than uh, okay, any of the kids, I think. Like, I'm, I've am i never really been in a group like that, like been able to put me in a category like that. It sounds really pretentious, like I am my own person. But like, I've bit. never really... <laughs> I've never, but I've never really sat in a group. Just ruining like the that. fun of the game, but I'm really sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm really sorry, but I haven't ever. I mean, if anything, mostly like Allison, I guess. Okay. I'm definitely a Brian. Oh, are you? Yeah. I was going to say you were a Claire. <laughs> no. Okay. No, I was definitely like the kind of the good grades, quiet, well-behaved okay. kid at school that like didn't necessarily quite fit in. I wanted to be an Andrew, but I was probably a Brian. But I yeah. do some stupid things occasionally, like like an Andrew. I was sort of a halfway point between them, yeah. Uh, but pr- m- just, more so a Brian. I was just an angry kid. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now let's go. Favorite character. My favorite character is Allison. Okay. Yeah. Georgia. I like I like Brian. Brian. Yeah, he's my favorite. He wins me for early on as well, and just keeps it, oh, really? keeps it the whole okay. way through. Yeah, um, I like Brian as well. I mean, obviously because I identify with with his character the most partly, but also I really like the scene where he just becomes really defiant at the end and um, and tells tells Claire that she's um, what's the word? She he calls her conceited and just tells her to fuck off, fuck you, and just becomes really kind of stands up for himself finally and i just really like that sort of shift okay uh i'm gonna go with judd nelson i really liked him and the more we went down that rabbit hole the more i went wow and just just a, a good shout to judd nelson for how he played it i'm like yeah you might have been third choice but you absolutely nailed that nailed that nailed that nailed that um yeah, he did. I mean, as a child, he's the one I, I gravitated towards the most. See, he's the one I would have hated because he kind of reminded me of probably every bully I saw in the school. I was never a bully. I was just angry kid, and yeah. I just related to the angriness. Um, but late years later, being the adult now, I look back and I Ali Sheedy's character, Allison, is the one I like okay. as an adult. Um, yeah. Favorite bit of the film? Favorite scene? Favorite moment? Favorite little sketch, if you will. My favorite little bit is when Alison rests her head on her hands <laughs> looking at the camera. Yeah. That's, okay. that's, that's just, 
it's just a great, great little scene. Visual? I love it. Excellent, Georgia. I like it when they're all getting high. I think that's hilarious. Brian in that scene, really, really. Okay. He, he, that's another point where I just go, yeah, you're my favourite. I think he's really funny in that with his sunglasses on, just talking shit. It's great. I love it. Um, I really like the bit when Bender reveals what his home life is like, and you get that vulnerability oh, wow. to him, that complete kind of character shift, and you. I just felt like from that moment, I completely understood him because beforehand, obviously, he's just an asshole, but when you start to realise the reasons why he acts out in the way that he does, I think it's it's just so telling. I'll honourable mention that, but uh, especially if you add in the bit where he does Brian's home life beforehand as well. I thought that was really, really good. I'm going to go with the first face-off between uh, Bender and Vernon, where he's like, you want another mm. one? I'll give you another one. And that was that? Was yeah. that? It's eight? It's actually seven. Shut <laughs> That whole kind of trying to control a room and going, I can see where everybody's coming from in this scene. And... And up to the exhale when he gets out of the door. The whole I'm just like I just really appreciated that. Maybe it's just me going. It's nice to see my my experience documented on on camera. <laughs> um, no, I do like I like that bit of back and forth that's there as well. Um, is this because I saw a review that said this is the quintessential '80s film? Are they wrong? Let me open up first. Is this a better film? You have to have seen both films, so it might just be me and Liam talking here for a second. Is this a better film than Ferris Bueller? Oh. No, I like Ferris Bueller more. You like Ferris Bueller more? See, I predicted this, that you were going to like Ferris more, and I was going to like Breakfast Club more. Maybe it's because in Ferris, more stuff happens. Yeah, maybe. And they get out of the school, whereas I'm probably the more... I mean, I directed Crucible. I'm the guy who likes people just talking at each other for... (laughs) Do you know what it was about um, Ferris Bueller that I liked more? What was that? Breaking the fourth wall. Okay, just, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice. I mean, yeah. I mean, I hate Matthew Broderick. That's probably part of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but for me, I'd never seen anything like that before. Okay. See, I didn't see it until I was much older. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I do love, I mean, Breakfast Club is an amazing film, and I do love it, but Ferris Bueller tips it just a little bit more for me. Georgia, did you see it in Ferris Bueller? I've seen little bits, but not enough to talk about or compare it, no. So let's talk about this then. This or Back to the Future? Back to the Future every time. It's more 80s, isn't it? Oh, really? Okay. Back to the Future. Like for the the memories that you get of the 80s, the the music, the clothing style, the people you talk to, the households, that kind of thing. It's all very, very 80s. I'm going to do a diehard argument and say Back to the Future is the more fun movie. Yeah, I'm not sure it's the better movie. The thing. Oh no, that- I didn't say it was the better movie. I said it was the more '80s movie. I oh, thought that was okay. Fair enough. No, no, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think we- Back to the Future is more of a clever movie. Okay. Interesting. I think with Back to the Future, yeah. you just you got so much more story with it, and there's so many more opportunities to, well, kind of showcase what it means to be an '80s movie. Whereas with this one, it's all in the one. You know, you kind of move around the school a little bit, but it's pretty much in the same place isn't it and with yeah. the same very select bunch of characters i can understand why you like it more though because it's got more dialogue yeah i mean i mean it gives you what these other films can't which is tons of time for character development yeah dialogue lets you do that you feel uh, you come out of this feeling like you actually know these people and that they have changed yeah. like they have experience because you've experienced it almost it feels like it's real time it's not but it feels like it, it. is very much a character study yeah. this one isn't yeah. it um, and you get all of this warmth and heart and genuine feelings from them because you spend so much time with the same five or seven people, but same five people, really. 
and it means that you get to know these people and it leaves you with it leaves you feeling changed afterwards which i think is definitely a mark of a good film whereas something like something like um back to the future you kind of go yeah that was fun end like it's not necessarily as much of a change in the way you think than that it is with the breakfast club okay you think they've all changed ian what's your view on molly ringwald's character towards the end what do you mean like do, do i think it's like an organic believable do you thing think, do you think she's changed i, I think she has changed in what way okay like uh the the bit where she approaches john bender doesn't surprise me because i think early on she shows signs of interest even though she's acting the yeah. way you're supposed to act there's one bit where yeah. she's just full-on doe eyes at him yeah and she likes the bad boy. You get that quite clear early yeah. on. The others are all doing something really interesting. Has she changed? No, because I think she sees John Bender as someone she wants something from. Not that it's that selfish, but he's the exception because she wants it. This is going to be her boyfriend. And, yeah. and the credit it's going to give her. I still don't think she says hi to Brian at school on Monday. No. I don't. She's the only character I don't like I think, the end. I think, I think Brian, if he gets said hi to any of them, it's because Allison is with... Andrew and like is like no you have to speak to him because I told him the people I'm friends with wouldn't do this to him and that's another weird thing the character between um, Emilio and Ali yeah they don't really show too much attention to each other through the whole movie and then they're built they they have three moments they have the bit where they go and get the coke together that's scene one they have the bit where he pisses her off and she storms off and then she says they ignore me and he goes okay I get that and then we have the reveal. And we have to have those two get together so no one's rooting for anybody except for Ringwald and Bender to end up together in the end. Yeah, I know, but it just didn't seem right. Because Brian, I... for no moment, seems sexual in the slightest, minus him adjusting his erection earlier in the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, is this the best teen movie ever? I'm going to put my stake in the sand right now and say I think it is. Prove me wrong. The only other teen movies I've seen have been ones that have been made, like early 2000s including wild child um so i can't really compete in this (laughs) because i mean i do like mean girls i really really do yeah mean girls 100 percent is better than this film because i think each decade's given us one great teen film liam i think the 80s gave us the breakfast club i think the 90s gave us clueless and i think the 2000s gave us mean girls do you prefer this i like 10 things i hate about about you you. yeah (laughs) Yes, uh, yes, I do. I do prefer this to 10 Things I Hate About okay. You. 10 Things I Hate About You is good, but it goes cartoony occasionally. Oh, and I thought you loved that film. I do. I just don't like it as much as this. Okay. <laughs> um, Where I'd say the opposite. I prefer 10 Things I Hate About You. Is there anybody for whom this is not their best role ever? I've got one. I don't know that I've actually seen any of these people in any other role that I've, I could remember. Have so. you not seen The Mighty Ducks? No. Oh, really? Because yeah. that's that's the easy one to go. But Liam, I'm going to go. Emilio Estevez, Young Guns. Yeah. Young Guns, brilliant. Young Guns. This he's better in Young Guns than he is in this. Yes. That's that's my argument. I'll make you famous. Yeah, I'm mine. Yeah. So you have to be a quicker shot than that. Ellie just like knocked her microphone. Sorry. <laughs> but no, I'll make you famous. There we go. I love the Young Guns films. Rotten Tomatoes does not, but I do love the Young Guns films. So Me too. I love both movies. Yeah. First one more so. I like the second one more. That's interesting. Um, okay, so uh, Grumbles. Let me have a grumble about this film. I don't think I do. It's 
it's easy to watch. It's interesting. The characters are developed well. I quite like some of the cinematography. It's not great, and there's nothing massively there's nothing to marvel at. about it. But... but there's nothing bad about no. it. Um, it's not groundbreaking. No, it's. I quite like it. It is like a play. But 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 I'm okay with that. That's not, that's not a criticism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah perhaps yeah. that might be why I'm drawn to it so much mm. because it is so interesting in that way. I, just I don't have... have no grumbles either. Okay. I just had a small thing that really annoyed me at the end. Um, when uh, Claire and Bender are kind of kissing, as she you know she gives him the earring, and then they start this little bit of a kind of mini makeout session, and they're leaning against the car, which her parent is driving. <laughs> And then she that just happens. kind of gets in the car and they drive off. That's, I'm thinking, that's no North par- Americans. That's no, North no Americans. No parent is going to watch that and just drive off. They would be like, uh, who, what the hell were you doing with that guy? Or who know. was that? Like, just, no, that was, that was too just forced. Um, I'm going to go with two. I mean, there's, 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 all, I mean, there's the crotch shots. I didn't need those. Oh, and, yeah. And the makeover. I didn't need the makeover for, oh, for, yeah. for her to have value. She's only given value when the wrestler thought she was pretty. Yeah, that's actually, my issue. Yeah. But uh, something we haven't talked about, and I can't believe we forgot, Liam. We have not talked about the iconic fist pump as the song yeah. comes back on, and so, yeah, yeah, and he sort of you know, raises his fist in the air. That gives me chills every time I watch. And that. he was just told, "We're going to shoot this a bunch of times. Do a bunch of different movements." <laughs> and one of them he did was the fist pump, and they went, "Do that again." And they sort of worked with that, and that's where we get that iconic fist pump. It was really, he was just supposed to walk through, and they said, "Just do some other stuff, just so we have it." So another iconic moment, just kind of created by letting the actors have some freedom, which I'm always a big fan of. Yeah, same. Yeah, so such is. Um, let's play the age game. The age game. The age game. I think you've ruined a lot of the age game with lots of little comments throughout well, the let's thing. Just, let's just go. Let's just go rapid fire <laughs> around the table on these. Okay, so Bender. Bender, I will go last because I think I know most of these. He's 20... definitely older. Rapid 22. fire, guys. Twenty-two, Georgia. Twenty-five. I believe he's twenty-four. He's twenty-five. Oh, there we go, Georgia. Oh. That's when you get the gray in the front of your hair like that. It's twenty-five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm not looking forward to it happening to me. Claire. <laughs> Claire. Molly Ringwald. Sixteen. Uh, Eighteen. I think she's sixteen while it's filming, but I think she turns seventeen just after it comes out. Yep, she's seventeen. Yeah. Um, Brian. Sixteen. Seventeen. He's sixteen, I think. Seventeen. Oh, seventeen. Okay. Uh, Andrew. Emilio Estevez. Andrew. Twenty-one. Um, nineteen. I think he's twenty-four as well. Twenty-three. Twenty-three. Okay. And Allison. Oh. Allison. Oh, I don't know her actually. To be fair. She looks 20. young. You're seventeen. What'd you say, Liam? Twenty. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go nineteen. Twenty-two. Twenty-two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what about Richard Vernon, the teacher? Oh, the teacher, Vernon. I don't know this one. 46. That's not bad. Um, I'll go 40. No, he's older than that. I'm going to go 49. 44. He is 46. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah! <laughs> and finally, Carl Reed, the janitor. Now, I do know this one, so I'm going to abstain from this one. He's also Canadian, so that's how I know. Because you know the age of every single Canadian. Actor no, because ever. because like we come from the same <laughs> village, like 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 all Canadians do. Thirty-eight. <laughs> um, forty. He is twenty-nine. 
One. If you look at it again, he's got a five o'clock shadow, which makes him look older, and his hairline's badly receding. But it does uh, give him that idea of that big man on campus who, like, ten years later is just the janitor. Yeah. Right? So really, really interesting. Um, let's do something really quickly before we – if you think about your own ratings, we've got a couple of minutes here. I went and looked for some equal opportunity ratings. And what I mean by that is I went and I said, we've, we obviously all like the film to various degrees. What gripes could people have on it? So I went on Amazon and I went on Google and thought, what are people's things? So Joe C. writes, I wish I'd nailed my tits to a plank of burning wood instead. <laughs> well, that's 30 minutes of my life I'll never get back. Next time a friend recommends a film like this, I'll ignore them. Well, they sound like they have a similar home life to Bender. Um, someone else wrote, ignore the cult status. This film is terrible. I watched it thinking it would be a feel-good teen movie with a catchy 80s soundtrack. Instead, it was fairly wooden acting and a host of extremely angry characters intent on bullying each other, mainly the popular girl, into revealing the sexual history. I'm not sure how this became a cult film. It was truly terrible. What do they think a teen movie is? Why is this a classic? This is a British one named Rockio. The movie rates amongst the worst movies I've ever seen. Why does it get such good reviews? In my opinion, it was badly acted and the plot is boring. Bad. Bad. (laughs) And then finally, I bought this film after hearing someone rave on about it. We thought it was very boring and not at all what I expected. We all have different tastes, though, so perhaps others will enjoy it. And sorry, there was one last thing. I do apologize. And it was one star. They ate one meal and it was lunch. (laughs) Why is it called The Breakfast Club? (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a very good point. (laughs) That's great. We are at that time. So let's go around the table. Liam, it is rating time. Ratings. uh... (laughs) (laughs) He's got his magic eight ball out, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Very nice. Yeah. Georgia? Um, it was seven and a half. Seven and a half? Okay. Seven for me. Seven for... Wow. <sighs> Can't have a classic around you, Ellie. It's seven not gonna, is a good rating. Seven's, a, seven's an all right rating. Yeah. Like, I well, enjoyed I it. Well, I am going to... It did not make me want to nail anything to a, to a plank of wood. Uh, I was not that bothered no. by the lack of breakfast in the film. Uh, maybe, maybe, Liam, maybe it's growing up with it. Maybe it's hominid as part of your thing. Or maybe it speaks to an experience we might have had in high school that was gone by the time people came after us. I'm giving this a 9 out of 10. I love this film. I think yeah. it's brilliant. I think it's well acted. I, you know what? I've, I've been talking to the last bunch of films about pacing. This film is perfectly paced. Yeah, actually, you've, always... you've spoken me into an eight. Can Have you I? put me in an eight, please? An eight? Yeah, because okay. I forgot how good I thought the acting was. This, like, it's well acted. Five characters who all have their own thing going on and each have their moment to shine and their own confessional sort of big moments. And there are some, some issues I have with it. And that's why it doesn't get higher. Than that. But I think it's just so, so, so strong. And you don't have to have all the bells and whistles and explosions and aspirin bottles no. that take you to, to a Canadian truck stop to sometimes <laughs> yeah. get out of the film okay. It just goes – it's an organic thing. And the characters, with the exception of maybe Claire, are all different people than when they walk in. And really that's kind of what I want. Yeah. yeah. So – such is so that is that which means liam we are now left to go what are we going to be talking about next time and you have a listener request i do have a listener request. so why don't you introduce what we are watching for next 
week. Who who was who who was it who requested this? <laughs> it's my work colleague and my friend Lee. Okay. Um, well, his real name is Lestat. But um, how how, how interview he, with the vampire of him? Yes, he don't like be, he don't like being called Lestat. Oh. He likes to be called Lee. Okay. Um, but I insist on calling him Lestat. Okay. Um, he's come up with Fight Club. Fight That's Club. I think it's 1999 Fight Club, directed by David Fincher, who also brought to us the films Seven and Gone Girl. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, Liam, I'm assuming you've seen it before. Yes. Yeah, 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 I've yeah. seen it before. Georgia, have you seen it before? I have seen okay. it, yes. You have not seen it before, I'm guessing. I have not, no. Okay. So, David Fincher's Fight Club. So please join us next time when we are going to be watching David Fincher's classic. I'm well excited for this. Fight Club for Best Film Ever. I've been Ian. And I've been Liam. I've been Ellie. And I've been Georgia. And in the words of a throwaway song from a forgettable movie, we hope that when it comes time to our review next week that you don't forget about us. We'll see you next time. (laughs)